If you're not one for agricultural metaphors, it's been a rough couple of weeks for you in the Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, immediately following the parable of the sower that we heard last week, Jesus tells this other parable, this parable of the sowing of the weeds. And to be honest, I've never liked this story much. It's just not, it's not very satisfying for one. It also just seems so unlike Jesus in some ways, uh, particularly his explanation of the parable. There are some scholars and theologians, you just, you know, grain of salt, all that, who think that Jesus didn't actually explain this parable. And if he did, he did a really poor job of it. <laughs> so that by the time the disciples are saying, explain this to us, that those might not have been Jesus' words, right? For what it's worth, I don't know. Here it is. It says that it's Jesus, so we'll assume it's Jesus. But there's something about the explanation that's just so unsatisfying as well. I mean, the, the parable itself is so rich, and there's so much to be said that by the time they're saying to Jesus, what is that all about? He leaves so much out. <laughs> he turns it into just this simple, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age kind of story. Not only is there so much that's left unsaid, but there's not a whole lot about this story that helps me actually make sense of my life. It doesn't help me sort out anything that's going on with me, and it definitely doesn't give me permission to sort out the lives of other people, which is oftentimes what we like to hear. But he doesn't do that. So what are we to make of this parable? Is this a way of telling us, the good Christians, that we're going to have to bear with the unsufferable people and situations until eternity? Are we supposed to let evil run amok in the world, causing pain and destruction, and there's no earthly consequence? Are we, as Christians, just supposed to obey the master's command and do nothing about the evil that we experience in the world? Kind of is what Jesus says to us today. Usually when we're pressed with issues of good and evil, one of the very first things that we wanna know is who is the source of this evil or where is the source of this evil? Where is it coming from? Who is the originator of all these things that are going wrong, that are broken in our world? Why does evil exist at all? Why does, why does God allow it? How do we make sense of a good God when so much of the world is clearly evil? But Jesus doesn't seem too concerned about making sure that the hearers of the parable have all the right ideas about good and about evil. Good and evil exist. We know this and oftentimes exist right alongside one another, so close, in fact, that it's hard to untangle them at times. But where did the weeds come from? The servants want to know. And the only response that Jesus gives them to this question is for them to pay attention, that the enemy is nearby, somewhere out there, close, not you and not me, somewhere else, outside of us, outside of ourselves. And even though the parable doesn't answer the question of where evil comes from, Jesus does imply that no one is responsible for the evil itself. I think if we're honest, this is the question that we ask all the time. Where did the weeds come from? 
And we ask not out of some kind of agricultural curiosity. We ask because we want to identify, we want to name an enemy, someone or something that we can direct our sense of justice toward. We wanna know who are the good guys. We wanna know who are the bad guys. Who are the cops? Who are the robbers? I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time as a kid playing cops and robbers. My, my mom sent me not too long ago uh, a package of DVDs and it was all of our homemade, like our, our home videos, you know, that she had gotten digitized and put on these, these discs. So I was watching them and there's one of these movies in particular, one of these videos where my sister and I are playing cops and robbers, as you do when you're, when you're three, four years old. I've got a great hat for the role, a really sweet vest. It had fringe and everything. And at one point, we just, we just switch. I was originally the cop and she was the robber. And then after a while, now I'm the person that she was and she's the person that I was. We were cops and now we're robbers and she was a robber and now she's a cop. That's how so much of our life feels anyway. That these roles of good cop, bad cop, cops, robbers, good guys, bad guys, it's not as simple as we would like to make it. It's never that clear as to who is right, who is wrong. Alexander Solonitsyn, he's a Russian uh, novelist, writer. He says this, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing all evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line, he says, dividing good and evil, it cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Tim Keller also famously said that we wish God would rid the world of evil, but that means he's got to be willing to get rid of us too. It's not so simple. The weeds that Jesus is talking about. It's a particular plant, again, to lean into our agricultural metaphor. It's a particular plant called a darnel. And when I imagined this story as a kid, I thought this field owner must have been a little bit of an idiot because I can tell the difference between wheat and weeds. I know what weeds look like and I know what wheat looks like. And there's no way that I'd be out there confusing the two, the way that this story implies. But darnels are tricky. They're tricky because they grow in the very same area and in the very same way that wheat grows. It looks exactly like a blade of wheat all the way up to the moment when the ear appears until the fruit of the thing shows up. It also turns out that darnels are poisonous. They'll make you hallucinate. They'll make you see things that aren't actually there. They'll make you see reality in ways that aren't really true. Darnells are also known as what, what they call false wheat. And these two things, these wheat and these darnells, they're growing together. The wheat and the false wheat, life and the counterfeit life. More often than not, you don't know how to tell the difference. 
In fact, Jesus says, by trying to uproot what you imagine is false wheat, you'll only do harm to the wheat that is actually good. That there is good sown in this field that you're not aware of. And Jesus is emphatic. It wasn't you who did this sowing. You aren't responsible for the weeds, for the evil itself, any more than you're responsible for the wheat. The owner of the house assures the servants, you didn't plant bad seed, either intentionally or negligently. The evil one is the one who came unexpectedly in the night. He's the one who sowed that bad seed. In fact, the servants at that moment, when it all happened, when the bad seed was sown, what are the servants doing? Exactly what they were supposed to be doing. They were sleeping. They were resting. We tend to want the issue of evil to get addressed, specifically on an intellectual level. Again, we come back to those questions of where does evil originate? How does evil originate? Where does evil come from? But that's not the question that's being asked here. Jesus says, neither the, the, the slaves nor the field are to blame for the condition of the field. And because they're not to blame, there's no question of how the servants are going to be forgiven. There's no question about how the field should be improved. We're asking all the wrong questions about this parable. The only question that exists and the only issue that the parable is concerned with is how is the evil removed and who does the removing? How does it happen and who's responsible to make sure that it happens? The servants respond in the same way that we often do when confronted with evil. They want to know what to do about it. They see a wrong and they want to say, how do we make it right? In fact, they have an idea of exactly how to go about doing something about it. Do you want us to go and gather the weeds, they ask. Apparently, they can see the problem. <laughs> They're not too fooled. At least they don't think they are about what in the field is wheat and what in the field is weeds. This is their reaction and it's often ours. And it certainly would have been the reaction that Jesus audience, the people who are expecting a Messiah to come and to overthrow this oppressive government, it is the thing that they would have wanted. How and who is gonna make all of this right? There is evil in the world. We want to go after it. We want to destroy it because that seems right. Remember last week we discussed Martin Luther's contrast of, of right-handed power versus left-handed power. Right-handed power, he says, is the power to force a desired result. It's the power to make the world what I want of it. It's the power of numbers. It's the power of, of size, of military might. It's the power of hierarchy where some are lifted up and then some are made low. This is the response the enemy wants from the servants to respond to the weeds with right-handed power. But it's not the response of the owner of the field. What does he tell them? Leave the weeds alone. Do nothing. Last week, I introduced you to Father Robert Capon. 
And here he suggests that the evil one, the one who sowed the weeds in the first place, he anticipates a right-handed response to his action. This is why the evil one leaves the field after planting the bad seeds. And think about all the time it took to plant the seed and then to go away and to wait patiently for someone to respond in ways that are inappropriate. He doesn't destroy the field himself. He leaves that work up to the servants. This is what Father Capon says about it. As the parable develops its point though, the enemy turns out not to need anything more than negative power. He has to act only minimally on his own to wreak havoc in the world. Mostly he depends on the forces of goodness insofar as he can sucker them into taking up arms against the confusion he has introduced to do his work. That is precisely why the enemy goes away after sowing the weeds. He has no need whatsoever to hang around, unable to take positive action anyway, having no real power to muck up the operation. He simply sprinkles around a generous helping of darkness and waits for the children of light to get flustered enough to do the job for him. Goodness itself, in other words, if it is sufficiently committed to plausible, right-handed, strong-arm methods, will, in the very name of goodness, do all and more than all that evil had in mind. This is it. This is the point. The enemy goes away after sowing the seed. Why? Because he trusts that in our rush to put the world in order, we'll actually uproot the good that God has planted. When we rush to pull the weeds, we start doing the work that God has reserved for God's self to do. We have to know what is ours to do. What are we responsible for? And the work that's been given us is to be attentive and to be obedient to the master of the field, to the one who sees the evil and he sees the good all mixed in one place. And all he tells us to do about it is to rest, to rest, to leave it be for now. You don't have to make sense of your life in the world by working so hard, by putting people in categories that you can make sense of. Remember, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And while we are rushing to do God's job for God, he just tells us to leave it be. The command Jesus gives them in this parable is this, allow them both to grow. Allow them to grow together. Allow them. I'm not a languages guy, but the word, the Greek word Jesus is using here is afit. It's a word that can mean permit. This is the same word that Jesus uses when Lazarus comes out of the tomb and Jesus says, loose him and let him go. Allow him to live. Permit him to be free. It can also be translated as forgive. Jesus uses this same word when he teaches us to pray and he tells us to forgive our trespassers. 
So the man's instruction to his servants could also be translated as do nothing and forgive the wheat and the weeds to grow up together. This is the point, Capon says. On hearing, therefore, that the farmer's answer to the malice of the enemy was yet another effeat. They might well have grasped the Holy Spirit's exalted pun immediately. The malice, the evil, the badness that is manifest in the real world and in the lives of real people is not to be dealt with by attacking or abolishing the things or the person in whom it dwells. Rather, it is to be dealt with only by an aphesis by letting be that is a forgiveness, that is a suffering, that is even a permission, all rolled into one. What Jesus is nudging us toward and what Capon is quick to notice is that this has always been the master's command to us to let it be to forgive. Matthew 5, we are not to resist one that is evil. Instead, we are required to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Loving our enemies doesn't mean we just leave them alone. Loving our enemies is an, is an active business. Forgiving our enemies is an active business. Matthew 7 says, we are not the judge of evil. Some of Jesus' final words on the cross were cries of forgiveness for those who crucified him. This is the left-handed power of the kingdom. It's very different than the power that we would imagine for ourselves or make for ourselves. It's the power of love. It's the power of forgiveness. It's the power of sacrificial service. Martin Luther says that left-handed power is the most powerful force in the world. I'm almost done, but let me be clear about something. To let the wheat and the weeds grow up together doesn't mean we don't resist evil or try to right the wrongs of the world. This is not a do nothing about it sermon. It doesn't mean do nothing. But it does mean that we have to be clear about what it is that we're doing and what is ours to do. It's not morally wrong to resist evil, but Capon suggests it is salvifically ineffective. You resisting evil in the world does nothing to produce salvation. Salvation is God's work to be left up to God. Capon says this, you may therefore make out as many cases as you like for just wars, for capital punishment, or any other sensible right-handed solution to the presence of malefactors on earth. But you must not assume that such solutions will necessarily make the world a better place. Again, what is he saying? There is certain work that God has reserved for God's own self to accomplish. The work of salvation, the work of judgment, the work of righting the world once and for all. So do good in the world. Right the wrongs that you can bear witness to. But we have to be able to work towards good for ourselves and for others without judgment because God is the final judge. 
He is the one who knows the truth. He is the one who can faithfully separate the wheat from the weeds. And he hasn't said the final word yet. There may be fruit in a person's life that you think looks like weeds and it turns out to be a harvest. There might be what looks like a harvest growing up in someone's life, but in fact, it's just a bunch of weeds. And to make it more complicated, more often than not, the field of your own life is all mixed up with all kinds of weed and all kinds of weeds. And what we need, what our neighbors need, are people who will tend to us without judgment. Trusting that the judgment of God is going to burn away all of that falsehood from our lives. That is the promise of judgment. It's not a threat. It is a promise that the judgment of God will make everything right. And so long as God is the one who's judging, it's good news for you and for me because it means everything that isn't what God intended for us will be burned up. And so long as we leave that work up to God, we can rest. Amen.